Welcome to Le Arte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is uh, Greg Millet. Greg has been studying Western martial arts for almost 30 years. He co-founded the Chicago Swordplay Guild, co-owns Freelance Academy Press, and started the legendary Western Martial Arts Weekend. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. I appreciate being here, Josh. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you. It's a it's an honor to have you. Um, so you've been doing Western martial arts for really over thirty years, because um, I know that you had said that you had done a little bit of uh, sport fencing before you started mm-hmm. into really uh, getting into Western martial arts. So tell me a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in uh, Western martial arts. Sure, sure. So. Um... So the official story is that, uh, and and I'm and it's a good one to tell because we're just past the anniversary of my dad's passing, and so the official story is that I always blame my dad for this because he uh, he was the person who you know started me as a young kid watching uh, Sunday Sunday afternoon family classics with you know Errol Flynn movies and all these different swashbucklers Tyrone Power and all that, so oh, yeah. I grew up loving all that stuff and and from him you know he had grown up reading. Sabatini novels and, and all of that. So it definitely comes from him. And he was the one who made me like my first wooden swords when I was a kid. And, you know, um, so, it, so it was from my whole childhood, it was a thing about wanting to know how knights fought, you know, and um, I have, I have very misshapen knuckles, far less from Hema than from uh, my friends and I in, uh, you know, um, prior to high school, cutting down our hockey sticks and making them into swords and yeah, and, and, and wearing like really good safety gear, like our winter gloves, because they protect <laughs> our hands and, and uh, you know, bicycle jousting with um, three liter bottles on the end of a stick and uh, saucer sleds that we strapped onto the handlebars. And um, uh, yeah, so there's, there's some really good, some really good moments that, that hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully, you know, um, my parents never knew about. But uh, anyway, um, so in high school, I, I started sport fencing and because uh, that was, you know, that was sword fighting, right? Of course, it turned out not to be, but that is what it is. And I also joined the SCA when I was a little bit before my 16th birthday. So and I did that for about 15 years, something like that, until just before my 30th birthday. So, so I started in those circles. And of course, at the time, I was told in both of them, well, we don't really know how they fought back in the day. Um, it was pretty clear sport fencing wasn't it and nobody in the SCA in those days made any bones about the fact that they didn't really know what they were doing it was a recreated activity um, so when I went off to U of I um, I started uh, I dropped sport fencing and I, I took up Aikido because I thought it would really help with my my body mechanics and so I did Aikido and Kendo um, while I was in college and I was still in the SCA. I was the, the local group marshal. And um, U of I has this incredible research library. It's like 10 million volumes or something like that. It's after the Library of Congress and Harvard, it's the largest research library in the country. So, um, so I screwed up my major. I was a double major journalism psych and I dropped psych and re- realized um, I had picked up so many history credits that I was like this close to getting a history major, right? What I didn't really check was when are the classes you actually need to graduate available? So it turned out that no sticking around an extra semester was gonna be a whole year because I had to wait till the following spring. So I was taking like just enough classes to keep myself my full-time student status so I didn't have to start paying loans. And I mean, I was 
like I took a class on like Norse sagas and translation, right? I mean, like I was taking some pretty fluffy classes. So I, had, I had, suddenly I had free time and, um, and I had access to this library and I started digging around and I found a copy of Castle in the undergrad library. And he of course listed all these books and it turned out that um, the rare book room had uh, Degrassi and a few other things um, that I could look at, but of course I couldn't take out and I couldn't really read. And, uh, but they had a copy of um, Matthew's 1899 edition of Silver mm. sitting in the stacks and it had last been checked out in something like 1955 or something. What? Yeah, like no one had checked it out in like 40 years. So I, wow. yeah, so I promptly checked it out and went and photocopied the whole thing. And I was like, holy crap, here's this guy in, in 1599 talking about sword and sword and buckler and and you know bills and quarter staffs and it's still not quite knights but it's closer and um so that's what we started with and we started um I, some friends and i started working with, with silver and then i found uh three elizabethan fencing manuals which had it in there and also had degrassi and so you know in those days you had a hodgepodge everything so anyway that was kind of how it all started and then the the shift towards italian stuff came in the mid 90s um, when Stephen Hick hooked me up with a copy of Fiore, um, along with a really ugly, ugly, gross translation that had been done for the guys at the Royal Armories. Um, I mean, it was <laughs> clunky. And this is this is the the Pisani Dosi, um, but it was something. And you know, my family's Italian. My dad spoke Italian fluently. I had spoken it as a child and forgotten. And I realized, oh, I guess I'm just going to have to like learn how to read this. And, yeah. uh, and so that was, that was how it started. Um, and then along the way, all through the 90s, I did Tai Chi, I discontinued Kendo, I did um, a, a Koru uh, Jiu Jitsu style for a while, I did Toyama, Ru, uh, Batodo or Iaido, depending on which line you talk about. Um, but I, I stopped, all of that stopped in 2000. And I just moved strictly to Himo. So yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, the Chicago Swordplay Guild. Um, I mean, you guys are legendary in terms of the content that uh, you guys produce. I always use you guys almost as a metric to kind of base, or at least test my interpretations against. You know, sometimes if I read through Manchilino, I'll go back and I'll watch you guys' interpretations of Manchilino or Dalagoke or what, whatnot. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's. I, I love using it as a reference, um, mostly because uh, one of the things that I've seen that you guys have done exceptionally well um, is integrating the complexity of your footwork and keeping your footwork historical but also fighting with a level of earnest that meets what a lot of times we see in um, in HEMA and so that to me is something that I aspire towards um, because you know you can get by I think in the HEMA community with just kind of learning the plays and not necessarily getting into the real body dynamics of things. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that's something that you guys take and just really kind of crank up to 11. And I really appreciate. Um, well, so, thank you. I, I, I don't know if I quite get to 11. Certainly Rob, certainly Rob Rutherford does. Um, yeah. Yeah. He definitely does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, he, he definitely does. And, uh, but it's, but footwork something we're pretty obsessive about and, and you're right. I mean, you know, we're doing this as modern people often in modern floors and modern gear etc so it's very easy just to use good 
general athleticism. I mean, you could, you could put a bolognese sword arm on a, you know, an Olympic fencing uh, chassis, as it were, and the person would be quite effective. Would it be historical swordsmanship? Mm, no, um, it'd be historical-ish. So, yeah. yeah, right. And that, that's not, that's not what we're, what we're really, what we're really interested in here. So, yeah. So how did you, how did you come up? I mean, you, you co-founded the Chicago sword play guild. Um, tell me a little bit about it. Um, how you guys kind of came to that and, um, sure. Well, I'm going to do something that, you know, is so rare. I'm going to say something nice about Arma. Um, so, okay. <laughs> uh, although it was called Hacka in those days. So, I this mean, the first. Yeah, I know. It's especially coming from me. Uh, so, um, so you know, the the early days of the the Hacka website, um, it was really the only other than uh, Bill Wilson's uh, E-list group, the old Rapier L listserv group, and the old Classical Fencing listserv group. Those were really the only places to discuss this stuff. Um, even even prior to you know the old Sword Forum, and so there were a limited number of places to find people. And uh, essentially, by this point, we're late 90s, uh, you know, um, Clement's book had come out. And uh, so some people had learned about this stuff from his two, his two books, I guess they were both out by then. And um, I had a couple of friends, we were working with Silver, Fiore, Talhoff, or, you know, whatever we could find. And um, I had, uh, uh, I saw a post from this guy, Mark Rector saying, hey, I've got three friends in Chicago. We've been working on Rapier and I'm working on translating Talhofer. And this is the old Green Hill edition of Talhofer that, that's been available forever. Yep. And uh, he said, and I found this incredible park in Chicago auditorium. It's the largest indoor uh, park facility in the city. And at that time, the neighborhood was being kind of reclaimed. So he said, you know, they'll let us train there for free as long as we make our classes open to the public. So I was like, holy crap, we have a giant indoor training space on like the north side of the city for free if we teach, if we teach. So yeah, so we met on uh, the day after New Year's, uh, 1999 and uh, January 2nd. And so he had three friends and I had three friends. And that was, uh, that was the creation of the CSG. It was as simple as that. And um, we just kind of started working from there. And like anybody else at that time, it was, you know, it was a mishmash of, of influences, et cetera. We made the shift to uh, an all Italian shop in um, 2001. Mm. So for, you know, 20 years now, we've been focused purely on Italian martial arts. Um, and uh, we started really doing bolognese um, you know, this is funny thing is that if you had asked any of us in the 90s, like, what are the texts that'll get translated right away, right? Like the guess at that time would have been Meyer and Morozzo. Mm -hmm. They were both really famous. They're yep. both huge, you know, and they, and they, you know, I mean, famous in the sense of like, literally for, you know, for generations, people have talked about these two works. They're both huge. They have tons of weapons and, um, you know, and of course, we just now got a complete translation of Morozzo just what, two years ago, three years ago, Jarek's yep. book, yep. right? And so, you know, so we, we all thought that would have been right around the corner. Um, and uh, <laughs> oops, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so so we started Bolognese as being part of our curriculum around 2007. Um, <laughs> and uh, really, my first teacher in that would have been uh, Tom Leone and Steve Reich, who really 
Uh, Bill Wilson was one of the other early pioneers, but really those two kind of really started looking at it and working with it. And um, yeah, so so about 14 years now on the Bolognese side of the house. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And you know, that's that's why that's one of the big reasons why you're here because we gotta we gotta settle a couple matters uh, because okay, sure. you have you have the the background in both Fiore and Vadi and also in the Bolognese system to help sort of suss out and answer some of the questions that I think that um, I think that uh, are are starting to arise in terms of how we're looking at Marazzo. Um, so. There are a couple of different ways to approach Achille Marazzo and his um, and his two-handed sword section. And um, one of the things that I've found in my study, um, at least in, in looking at other people's interpretations, and, and I love what people are doing. There's a, a ton of interest in Marazzo's two-handed sword, um, but it seems like there's been a little bit of a trend to kind of allow KDF to influence the way that people are looking at Maranzo. And I don't quite see that. When I read the text literally, and I know you can't always, especially with Maranzo, read Maranzo literally, um, I, don't, I don't see a lot of KDF actions. Um, I know, I understand why people are reading KDF actions into it, um, but it's not, it's not really what I'm, what yeah, I'm seeing. I'm, yeah, I mean, look, you could, you could also, you know, read in Nidenichiru, uh, you know, Kenjutsu uh, actions, if that was the tradition you came from. I mean, it's a two-handed sword slash a two-handed stick, right? You mm -hmm. could read in Eskrima actions if that's what your background was. So pe people read in what they know. And uh, so I agree with you on that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's true. Yeah. So. so I think one of the biggest things that leads to this, and this is this is a question for you because it's, I think it's something that you can speak to and this is something I've been rolling around in my head. I haven't quite fully formed a good interpretation for it. It's just an idea that I've had and that I really want to kind of start to examine. Um, but looking at Filippo Vadi in particular, um, one of the things that people tend to do is they'll take Marazzo's cut a falso drito that enters, right? And they'll say, okay, I'm going to cut a falso drito that goes into Gordia de Entreri, right? So they turn that into a shielhau. I don't think that that's correct. And I think that Filippo Vadi actually gives us a, um, an answer to that um, with his posta breve. Because what Filippo Vadi says is if you were to cut, um, he says that, let's see, pull it up here on Wichtenauer. I was looking at, I've got two different translations and Guy Windsor's translation says something along the lines of, this is a good guard to take after you've cut. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, why don't I, while we're talking, I have mine sitting here. So why don't I, my actual translation. So why don't we make it three, right? Yeah, let's do it. So, um, and I always feel bad because people always say, wait, you did one? And it's like, well, yeah, we published it all the way back in 2001 and it's been out of print for years. But um, <laughs> I, we will, I am going to do a new one. But okay, so we want to look at Posta Breve, right? Yep, post breve. So Guy Windsor says, um, I am the short guard of the extended sword. I often strike and recover into it quickly. Um, I've got another translation, the one that's printed on Lulu Press, and I don't know who did this translation. Um, 
It says, I am poster breve of the extended sword, often cruel with the turns in cutting. I'm not sure if that's from different sources, but those are pretty wildly. Yeah, it, it would have to be because the, the Italian is, Son poster breve di spada longhezza, spesso ferisco con le torno in frezza. So that just really means I'm the short stance of the extended sword. Uh, I often strike and quickly return. Yes, and so that's that phrase right there, I strike and I quickly return, is what I think that Maranzo is talking about when he says you enter. I think that if you were to throw a false odrido or something like that, um, it is a false odrido, as then it's a rising cut, and you're pulling back into Gordia de Entrere. So, um, I mean, possibly, I, you know, I think, I think here's the bigger issue. People, let, let's, let's, let's start with the, the whole KDF thing, right? Okay. Is that, first of all, a false adrito is a, is a false edge cut from, from the right, and it's a, it's a rising cut. So, you know, uh, the German cuts a descending cut, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so let's, let's even take it a step further back. First assalto, first action literally first action. So you're in Guardia di Testa and you enter with a, a I forget if there he calls it a falso. A falso, a falso quintanto. Quintanto, yeah. yeah, right to the temple. Okay, so same exact action is in body. And it's actually in a play that people have a terrible time interpreting. It's the very first illustrated plate. Um, but if you take a look at the first plate where everyone's trying to make it into this weird false edge action, um, all he's showing you is a reverso. And, and we know this because he specifically described it earlier in the text. And I've written about this, but essentially he wants you to enter with a reverso. And if you look at the chapters that precede it, he then tells you to turn a false edge thrust to the temple. Mm -hmm. So, right, so Madrido, so a essentially a um, reverso fendente or in, in Bolognese terms, a reverso squalombrato that then turns into a falso, right? Mm -hmm. So now that's how he's getting there. Um, Marotta just has you go straight to the falso, right? Yeah. But what but what guard are you in at the end of it? You're in, you know, you're in uh, Guardia d'Entrare. And so for body's idea, the legs are paired. So I've made this action. The very next thing I do is turn my hips and snap them and drito to the other side. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at Marotta, what does he do? He enters with this false, he enters with this action by falso. He takes a step out to the side, right? With this longer weapon and he makes his redoubled mandrito. Um, but in both cases, where I'm going with this is that that first action is simply meant to use the speed of a thrust and the fact that a false edge action hooks around a guard to make a person chase the sword wide to mm -hmm. cover their outside line. Yep. Really, the real target has been the inside line the whole time. Right. And you know, so you're not trying to slip in past his guard and hit him you're making essentially an action that sneaks in to, to get him to chase something. Um, and that's, that's a very, it's a very Italian solution. You know, I, I also do a little Italian stick and knife. These are living traditions and they do the exact same sorts of things with the knife and the stick. In fact, the footwork looks really, really bolognese. Um, and, and remember, these are like folk traditions where if you talk to some of these old Sicilians and you know, start talking about Achille Marozzo, they'll literally say things like, I don't know him. Because <laughs> they'll think you're, they'll think you're talking about some living guy, you know. They're like, he sounds like a northerner. They have no idea who you're talking about. Well, they're kind of right. Yeah, and, and right, exactly. And uh, so, you know, um, so, uh, um, but you know, we see similar advice, for example, in Fiore. Um, 
similar types of actions where with the boar's tooth garden, he has two. So, you know, his advice, um, one is to attack, the, comes up the center line, but the other, what does he specifically tell you to do? He says, there's two ways. One is, is how the boar fights and one is how you fight the boar. And so he wants you to step out to your left and throw a thrust from below, mm -hmm. right? To draw the attack. And when they go to parry, you then yield and cut Fendente to the arms. So, and then return with the thrust again. It sounds um, pretty familiar. Yeah. It's right, it's very familiar. You've seen this action in the, um, in, you know, in, in fact, Morozzo's a sequence for the sword alone, right? The, that yep. we did, remember we had the contest early on in the pandemic that uh, Rainer came up with. Yep. Those whole actions out of Boar's Tooth that are out of, in Porta de Ferro Larga in Bolognese terms, those are basically Fiori's instructions for, from the Boar's Tooth, I mean, yep. identical. So, so yeah, I don't think you need to chase across the Alps looking for things. I, I think it's all in the Italian tradition and there's an Italian way to move and act and behave. And part of it is this love of, low, of actions from below, from low mm. guards, you know? I mean, think about it. What is, the, what is the guard that every KDF person relies on, Vomtag, mm -hmm. you know? And as much as the Bolognese have Guardia Alta, as soon as you switch to Spada de Filo, which guard disappears? Yeah, I mean, in fact, Morelta doesn't even bother to illustrate it. So, yeah, yeah. I think the, right? the, the two most common guards, Guardia Alta and Guardia de Spala, and he doesn't illustrate them. Yep. I know of one play, yeah. one play, and it blows my mind of yeah. Guardia Alta with Sword Alone, and it's in the Anonymo. And it's just one play out of his 460. And I think he just threw it in there because he just felt like he needed to cover it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. So. You know, it's not that they don't have them, but they're positions that you move through. I mean, obviously, Fiore has his posted Idona, which is Guardia de Spala. Yeah. I just, to my mind, one of the things that we see very much about the Bolognese is that these kind of, you know, high guards are far more transitory than other arts, and they're very rarely starting positions. So. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, there's, I think Guardia de Testa, because I think a lot of people tend to focus primarily on the first assault of the two-handed sword. Uh, they kind of miss the, the forest through the trees because they're mm -hmm. just looking at the, the first assault and they kind of, and those are all wide play actions, right? And right. even with, even with that first setup um, with uh, when you start in Gordia de Testa and you come in, you, you cut or you, uh, you do, you faint the, the falso impuntanto. That action, that setup is the reason why he tells you to do that is because your opponent is in Porta de Ferro Larga. And if you look at book three, when, um, when Marazzo is talking about how to attack from um, Gordia de Testa, and he gives you all those actions from Gordia de Testa, um, he actually tells you that you want to do Gordia de Testa against somebody who's in Cotolonga Estrada or is also in, in Gordia de Testa. You don't want to do it against somebody who's in Porta de Ferro Strata. So what we get with that first action is a provocation to get that person to leave their guard, exactly. right? Because they're, they're in a good defensive guard and we need to get them out of it. Um, and so I think that without the full scope of understanding, people are like, okay, well, this is what I need to do when that's not actually the guard that you are anticipating somebody to be in. And you're throwing this provocation that's just simply to get them out and to sort of disrupt their guard. No, you're, you're spot on. And the, the funny thing about that is, think about the guard Porta de Ferro Estrada, right? 
mm -hmm. and plug it into the context of the Bolognese tradition at large. So think about Manchelino, right? What is the only guard he has you use for his spada solo? Porta de Barrio Strada, right? Mm -hmm. And for, for um, Vigiani's perfect scaramo, even though the first play begins with what the traditional masters would call soto obraccio, mm -hmm. once you've done that universal parry, it then, he then recovers to what is his equivalent to Porta de Ferro Estrata. I mean, I know it's guarded, defensa, defensiva, professa, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, but really, it's Porta de Ferro Estrata. So the point is that those guards give you this universal parry that the Bolognese love. Mm -hmm. But what Morozzo is doing there is he knows that. I mean, he knows that's what, what it does. So what he's doing is he's making a feint that is essentially designed to get them the hell out of that position out of their strongest defense. Yeah. And, you know, I, I totally agree with you about the assaults have to be taken in context. And the first assault by itself, um, if that was all you studied, you've, you've really missed his lesson because think about how you, you constantly fly out with this falsehood to the hands, right? Mm -hmm. Because you constantly have to fly out. And, but remember what Morozzo tells us about if you don't know the Joko Stretto, you don't know the Joko Stretto, you know half of the art. Exactly. And he's, all, and he's showing you this here because he constantly is, is compelled to go back. And, um, you know, I think I told you, Josh, I did a, a little um, lesson when we were in lockdown for my students. I'd have them film stuff and so we could train. And one of the things I did was I took parts of the first assault and I said, okay, well, here's what Morozzo teaches. Here's how, you know, Fiore might do it. Here's how, here's how Vadi might do it using their guards, et cetera. Um, and some of their blow preferences. And, you know, the biggest difference when I gave the example of the Fiori action was that it was constantly pushing in, constantly driving in because Fiori has a couple of times that he shows retreats, but he's usually driving in towards the weapon side, towards the right side. That, that's a stylistic trait of his. Um, and so, you know, I made the point that if you had to retreat in Armazari, Fiori's art, um, here's where how the retreats would look. And people were like, well, well it just kind of looks like Morozzo now. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, right, because in his plays, his first assault, he's just showing you how to get back out in the Largo. Um, but that doesn't mean this is all you're supposed to do defense. So, Yeah, it, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of a little, how the Anonimo breaks down uh, wide play and narrow play. Um, where, let's see, I'm gonna read this off here. So he says, um, if you wish to be a good fencer, then you must understand that if you are fighting against one that understands the narrow play, you should try to fight against him from the wide play. Then your talent will be confounded. Or if you try to fight against him in the wide play, your talent will be confounded, right? So he's saying that narrow play is always going to sort of trump wide play. Mm -hmm. um, but then he goes on to explain, if you wish to use a full array of techniques and guards and all of your understanding, then when you run across a fencer that fights in the narrow play, then you'll act as though you plan to fence in the wide play and then astutely strike him from the narrow play. And so too, if you find a fencer that fences from the wide play, you should act as though you intend to fence from the narrow play, but strike him with an attack from the wide play. And that right there almost summarizes exactly what Murato is doing, where you're acting like you want to fight from the narrow play and then you're, you're hitting him in a wide play, 
right? Even with the exit where you're kind of sending that falso to the hand, mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of like bunching them up and you're giving them these like really tight attacks and then you're kind of pulling out. And then if you look at, um, if you look at book two or the second assault, um, what you end up seeing is a lot of these actions where most of his narrow play actions that he gives in the second book are preceded by a provocation or a some sort of a um, an embellishment, right? He does these really elaborate embellishments to try to get your opponent. Like you're gonna go in wide play, right? You're doing these big sweeping actions, like you're you're sort of fainting wide play, mm -hmm. and then that gets your opponent to come in narrow, and then you give a narrow counter. Yeah, and you know, and the thing is, right? When we talk about wide and narrow play or wide and close play, and and, and I, I use the term close when I talk about play and narrow when I talk about guards. Um, because of course the Anonimo is the one who makes the big deal about your points being in presence, right? Right, But yep. But of course, if we end up forte to forte, our points can't possibly be in presence. And yet yep. we are clearly in close play. So, uh, but, so without going into there, the, the, thing, the thing I'm making the point of is that the Italian language is, works differently than the English language does. We, we create, we create a new word for everything in English, basically, you know, and we have, and we layer meaning. So, so essentially, you know, you can take a narrow guard in wide play. You can take a, right. You can't take really take a wide guard, however. Um, but I agree with you. What, what to my mind, he's trying to get at here is that when I'm in the wide play, I can use full blows. I can use sweeping motions, right. I cannot do that. I have to use half cuts. I have to use thrusts in close play. Mm -hmm. um, which inevitably then sooner or later, I'm only fighting in close guards and sooner or later I'm at the half sword. And we know that the half sword is the delineator. And yep. so if you look at the first assalto, look at what constantly happens there is that you get these big sweeping motions that almost deny a mesospot crossing until the very end. And then I get there, I do something and then I fly out. And I fly out with things that are meant to constrain another term, right? um that constrain what the opponent can do and so um you know to my mind that's sort of the tactics that you see in Morozzo's two-handed sword is that there's there's these kind of large actions that I break measure off of that are deceptive that are meant to make you yourself wide spaced right to pull you out of a narrow guard so look at look at the first very first sequence he's in Porta de Ferro Estreta right so it's a narrow guard his point is in line Mine is not, I'm in a wide spaced guard. So what do I do? I make a thrust that pulls his point out of that line. Yep. Now I can throw a cut and it's two cuts, one of which is a full blow. So something happens, either he parries and I break it, keeping us in the wide play or whatever. Um, but the idea there is that, you know, um, he's making a choice to use these large actions there to pull me out as well. Um, and, uh, that's very different than, for example, what you see in the second assault. Yeah. Right. Um, or the third. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I think that, I think that people forget that the assaulty are um, pedagogical lessons. They aren't necessarily, you know, little, little fight sequences you're supposed to expect to look just like in a fight there he's trying to show you different kinds of play and how to apply it um and it's a very sophisticated pedagogical lesson but you got to treat it like a pedagogical lesson yeah yeah no and, and i think that's great too because 
I think, you know, in some way, um, I mean, I, I could follow this up with another uh, Anonymo quote, but I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to just read off the entire Anonymo here because, yeah. you know, I mean, he, he essentially gives the exact, like, like that's his perfect summation of um, how to conduct wide narrow play actions is, you know, if your opponent's point is offline, you work to get it online so that way you can take it offline. If their opponent, if their point is online, then you'll work to get it offline so that way you can strike them safely. Um, that's a, just my summary of it. But Right, like, and, and again, that's perfectly in keeping with what we see in the, you know, in the Armazari tradition as well. The point forward guards are considered to be probes and their whole purpose is to get someone to try to chase them, to displace them. Right. And so, you know, I want to pull you out of your guard. And when I do that, then I'm, then you're susceptible to a cut or a thrust. Um, so. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where I wanted to sort of take this is how, how do you view Vadi and Fiore as really kind of informing Morazzo? Because when it comes to Morazzo, sometimes I feel like because he's writing for Sebastian and we don't necessarily have that the core fundamental material that he's assuming that Sebastian is probably well versed in and knows how to teach. You know, um, sometimes we get these holes in Morato where we have to fill it in with something. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to take like Manchilino and his sword and, and large buckler material and then let that feed into Morato and his sword and large buckler material or his sword and target material and i feel like i really understand it you know yeah yeah and i, I we don't we don't have another uh, like two-handed sword system that can feed into Morato. so like how, how do you take that with fiore and body and how do you sort sure. of let that inform Morato? sure so um so there's I mean, there's a couple of things there. First of all, they're, they're definitely interwoven systems, right? So you can use different parts of Morozo to answer questions in Morozo. So you can use sword alone to answer two-handed sword. You can use sword and buckler. Um, I certainly, and I, I'm going to get to your question, um, but you know, you can also. I, I do want to say that one of the things about Manchelino is that you know, so the common wisdom for years, right, was that Manchelino and Morozo were both trained by DeLuca, um, mm -hmm. and Certainly they know each other because Manchelino is obviously taking a piss at Morozzo when he talks oh, about yeah. mas masters who put prices up on their wall. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's no doubt. But but also, like, look at their first assaulto of the sword and buckler. And it's so similar. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it, it feels like, like I said, I had a background in Aikido. If you look at the guys who trained with Osensei, the founder of Aikido, a lot of them, you know, took things a little bit this way, a little bit that way, and there's differences, but it's all still like keto. So um, they clearly, they're clearly kissing cousins, even though Manchelino doesn't have two-handed sword. Um, and uh, um, I mean, he clearly knew it. He references it. Yeah, he talks um, about it. Right, and of course, the anonymous is super frustrating because all he has is the is Just the half sword up. place. Yeah, and so the rest is, you know, got destroyed by the vagaries of time. Um, so yeah, so he'll give you strato, but, and of course the man, the man was obsessed with sword alone. Uh, I, I also sometimes I'm like, do you really want me to do this? Like, is this, is this just an exercise or are you like fat shit crazy? Cause some of those plays are, some of those plays are like, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, leap in and cut at his ankle and leap out and say, 
you out of your mind? <laughs> um, so uh, I mean, he's he is definitely a kind of balls to the wall kind of guy compared to the the other Bolognese. Um, but but anyway, so so you're right. So so first of all, we can we can extrapolate from different parts of the system to try uh, and other writers to fill each other in. So that's where that's where I would try to start. And that's where I do, I do always suggest people try to start is try to look within your immediate, your immediate circle. Um, but you know, I, uh, I have this, that, oh God, what the hell is the name of that book? That, that, oh, I have it, I have it sitting here, as a matter of fact. The uh, Meditations on Hema Mind Changer. And I, um, I did an article in there about what I call concentric rings, which mm -hmm. is sort of how do you research how do you research your art when you, when you don't have answers? So when you've got a guy like Morozzo who keeps saying, you know, as you well know, or as I have taught you, and, um, you know, uh, and then of course, doesn't explain, um, how do you look earlier? So, so here's my thought. Um, there's a common vocabulary between the Bolognese school and the Armazari tradition of, of Fiore. Um, Bologna and Ferrara, are separated by, you know, maybe two days ride on a horse. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Morozzo, Morozzo was teaching in Modena or, or had some connection to Modena, owned land there where it's entirely possible one of the copies of The Flower of Battle lived and he even named his book, The Flower of Arms. Um, so before, that's just a pet wild theory. I'm not saying that he actually had Fiore's book, yeah. but, but what I'm getting at is that there's clearly a common martial culture floating through Northern Italy that we're glimpsing darkly, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, I'm going to throw in a quick historical anecdote here too, as well, because didn't after Guido Rangoni lost control of Bologna after he was no longer um, in charge in Bologna, didn't he, didn't the Duke of Ferrara become the head of uh, Bologna um, in the papal, in the papal States? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's even even more of a sort of a, a sort of a, a stem there that connects Ferrara and Bologna. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, and I mean, the Este are one of the huge powers of Central Italy. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And you know, and uh, Bologna spends part of its history kind of being the the thumb in the eye of the Papal States' kind of ability to try to coalesce everything. <laughs> So there, there's a history there that is a, a martial history there that we, we only partly understand. But, but my point is that this idea that like, and I, one more thing I should point out, we don't know that Fiore himself was even ever in Ferrara. There's not a single data point that shows that he ever was in that city. Um, I have reasons to believe that Vadi was and that he saw the manuscripts there, but not, but not Fiore. And so, you know, so when Fiore was writing for Niccolo d'Este, was he, was he in Ferrara? Was he in Modena? Was he in Parma? Was he in Reggio? Was he not there at all? Was he up in Milan and, and sent this book as a gift? And we don't know. Um, but regardless, there's obviously a, there's obviously an Italian conception of fencing that is going on and that is drawing from common terminology. And, you know, and Fiore himself tells us that he had books on the art and had read books on the art. So I don't think Porta de Ferro is unique to either one of these schools. I don't think the idea of King Giaro is unique to either of these schools. Um, so once the way I handle it is once like looking at the other parts of Morozzo, there's no clear answer. 
and Moncellino and the Anonimo don't necessarily provide a clear answer. Then I go backwards, right? And it's, I think it's always better if you can go backwards and forwards because you know, trying to look, say, for example, at Dalagokiate answer or Morozzo question, they're within a tradition and a generation. Okay, but what if I, I find myself looking at, say, Salvatore Fabris, right? Things mm-hmm. have changed a lot now. Things have yep. changed a lot now. Whereas things haven't changed nearly as much between Filippo Vadi, who is a contemporary to DeLuca, mm-hmm. and Morozzo. You know, the, by the time Vadi's writing his book, Morozzo's alive. Right. Boy, but he's alive. So, yeah. you know, um, so that's, that's how I try to approach it. And, and by the same token, if I can't get an answer out of Fiori and Vadi, you know, I go looking to Morozzo before I necessarily go looking to say Peter Von Danzig. Um, yeah. and, and you might have to make that decision. You might have to go say, well, what does Meyer say about this? Um, you know, yeah. you, you might find that, but, but I don't think you need to. And I don't think that's where you should start because I think there's a definite Italian style of fencing and it is different. Um, there's a, there's just certain assumptions. The, just as soon as you move away from the idea of, of you know, actions being codified in guards, mm-hmm. you've taken on a different way of looking at the fight. Yeah. And you, can't, dis, you can't disconnect that from the, from the Bolognese school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why Vadi is so heretical. <laughs> or, I mean, not Vadi, right. but the... Um, Vigiani. Vigiani. Right, right. Because he, well, and yet, right? He, and yet he's a big freaking hypocrite because he says that. And then gives you like 15 name or 15 word long guard names. For the exact same damn guard. And, yeah. and, and provides the best primer in the art on body mechanics. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no. but, you know, um, so, yeah, he says there's guards one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then never calls them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven again. He comes up with just more names that are just as cumbersome as the old ones. Yeah. 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 That's, that's actually something that, um, through my research of just the tactical and strategic outlook of the Bolognese system, I started to realize how important the guards were to the way that everything really coexists with each other. Like um, if you if you look at the the overall framework of how you're told to approach a fight, you're told to approach by varying your guard as you come into measure. Um, and then once you're at that edge of measure, you identify what guard your opponent is in. And based on what guard you're in, you proceed with however you know to break that guard and, and sort of take advantage and, and gain control of the fight. Mm-hmm. And when you think of it that way, everything is so guard dependent and you look at Marazzo's advice on like his middle section, uh, which I like to call progression through the guards, but it's just that, that one section where he kind of gives you each guard and they kind of, you know, everything. Um, And even in like Michiolino's first chapter where he gives you how to attack from every guard, like you can plug that into Marazzo and you can get a really good framework of what Marazzo is talking about because Marazzo says, learn to just cut and defend against everything in this guard you know he doesn't actually explain how to do it he just tells you to do it and then Mancilino actually gives that advice but like if you look at that as a framework for how to think about the Bolognese system strategically because that's how they teach right like um even Dalogoke gives you the different guards and the provocations that you would do against somebody of course he's matching guards um where with somebody like the Anonimo, one of the things that the Anonimo gives us that we don't necessarily get is a little bit more of 
what do we do if we're or sort of guards that are not similar so like he's thinking a little bit more advanced like um you know a lot of times he'll have you with a left foot forward if your opponent's right foot is forward to sort of get that leverage position and stuff like that but um i i agree with you that that that's sort of the framework of italian fencing like being in a guard recognizing the guard and countering the guard and really kind of coming in and then you add you add in sprezzatura and you're just like this is you know you got to do it with a little bit of panache you got to make it beautiful because it's yeah exactly and you know like if you look at modern italian knife fighting um you'll see what looks like you know as these guys are practicing what looks like an awful lot of walking and embellishments right where the knife is the knife is moving and it's twirling and of course um and it's not because they're just trying to look cool although i mean they are italian so there's a certain amount of wanting to kind of look cool uh because that is actually part of of the aesthetic but part of it also is that you know as this thing is as I'm keeping it moving, et cetera, is is wondering which position it's going to come to. And what's interesting is even in the knife, the positions are called wide and closed. Mm. So there's an open position where the knife is up and back, and then there's a closed where the knife is in position here, pointed at you. Yeah. Right? So wide, closed, just nice. like the picture behind me with sword and buckler from 1400. Yep, right, wide and closed. Right? right, but with but with a folding knife. And, um, and so, um, and, but, you know, as they move and you look at the footwork, um, you know, it is these combinations of spiraling steps and half steps and cross steps that are very familiar. And the idea there though, is that by understanding these positions and how to move in them and how to hide the transitions to them, that's how you enter the fight and you approach the fight. Um, And then you always move out in kind of a dynamic position that is either under the cover of a thrust or is with a, a little hop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or is with a little embellishment. And that again is very similar to what we see in the assaulty, where you either often fly out with a thrust or some kind of combination of cuts. You know, um, Morozzo tends to have you do a little step out. Moncholino likes his little hop, right? But yeah. um, but again, you can, you can see that. And so I, I think that those characteristics are part of what makes this Italian. Yeah. And I mean, like, if you think of like a magician, right, it's sleight of hand. And Mm -hmm. what makes a good magician that can do sleight of hand things, um, the whole trick to it is constant motion that disguises your intention, right? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we're doing, but we're doing it with a sword. So we're, we're, we're essentially not declaring our intention as we come in, but reading our, our opponent um, and, and figuring out a way that we can press them to our advantage. Um, right, and we're, we're lying, right? The, I, I always joke that you know a, a fencing match is like a bad relationship because yeah. it's completely selfish. And <laughs> I'm, you know, I'll lie to you, I'll deceive you, and then I'll, and then I'll leave you. And, um, but, but it's true. And that, that's what I think a lot of what we see in the Largo is, is, you know, the, the Largo is those deceptions. Um, mm-hmm. The Stretto plays by nature tend to become somewhat more direct and aggressive because mm-hmm. the time is small. Space, yeah, exactly. The you space is small and therefore the yeah. time is small, right? You know, I'm at the Mezzospato, so I, I have no choice. Um, and so the point there is that um, and the way I think the Italians conceptualize the fight is that the Largo is where I set everything up so that when we get to the Stretto, 
this fight becomes very definitive very quickly. You know, and whereas if I just simply, and I, and I think that's what the anonymous is trying to get at, whereas if you just take the strato and I take the strato and I just come into you, you know, as Fiore says, the danger of the joke of strato is that what one can do, the other can do. Mm -hmm. And yep. so because there's parity, we can see that. And if you think about it, um, look at Dalgoke in the transition to rapier, right? Dalgoke starts moving, like you said, towards, okay, so you are in you know, Cota Longa Estrada, and I am in Cota Longa Estrada, and therefore we, and it's very, very much a parody. And by the age of the rapier, they drop the notion of Joko and switch to Mizura, purely Mizura, because essentially we're always matching our guards and we're always, every time someone lunges and I parry, we're in the Joko Strato. So mm -hmm. it's not a really useful distinction anymore. Right. The, the play always has that characteristic. Um, so they moved him just talking about Mizura. You know, am yeah. I? And I, I like that. I like that Delagoke also in that. And you know, I mean, he talks about that transition and and how he thinks that the fencing of the ancients, as he calls it, um, you know, which is another diss at Murato calling him old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, he says the fencing of the ancients is, um, you know, there was a lot of wide play and that it's beautiful, right? Like he says, if you want to fight sexy use wide play actions and wide play sexy you know but the the fencing of his day is very narrow and of course you know if you look at his contemporary authors at the time i mean the the roman system is pretty much completely taken over um in terms of naming guards and and positions and things like that um and it's 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 pretty fascinating too because like you still get like uh when I was talking to David Biggs and we were talking about the Vienna Anonymous, um, the there still seems to be a little bit of of this sort of using wide play guards to sort of confound your opponent and just kind of like dropping into wide play or, or wide guards, uh, excuse me, not wide play, but wide guards um, to sort of disguise um, intentions and things like that. We see that with Palladini um, and other authors where you see it, you see it with Fabris. Right where he, yeah. he takes his rapier and he puts it perpendicular to the line to set up a universal parry. Yeah, yeah. universal parry in a second, but it's it's essentially it's a smokescreen, right? He's yeah he's trying to make you think what the hell is this guy doing, and um, you know and it's yeah we we still it 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 doesn't just disappear. I mean, Capafero maintains Vigiani's universal parry, you know, um, from Quarta into Prima. And it, little bits of it persist. So, yeah, yeah. And then I, I, it's just, uh, it's, it feels like there's a, a, a core that we can look at and really sort of pull these things out of without having to extend ourselves so far that, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously there were. Germans, there were Spaniards, there were English um, in Italy well throughout the you know 1490s into the mid 1500s, and the question is how how solidified at that point was the style of sword fighting that we we would have to say like were they really so confounded by these invading people that they would sort of convert their sword fighting to match. Um, or is it that they had an existing system that just sort of evolved over time? And as warfare changed or as, as combat changed in 
you know, small groups and even in, in interpersonal combat. Um, is there something of a legacy that we can see that we can draw upon that we can just sort of lay out and say, this is where we need to focus? Yeah, you know, and I have to tell you, like you said, scary thought as it is, I'm, I'm at like 30, almost 30 years now of doing this stuff, which is making me feel very, very old. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I started off, of course, you know, in the early days, just just buying into the arguments that you know, kind of the nationalistic arguments that a castle and a Novati and a, um, a Vassmendorf, et cetera, had, you know, and then, and then we kind of all sort of rejected that and all these stupid Victorians and they didn't know what they were talking about. And the funny thing is, like, literally this morning, I was just finishing translating all of Novati's footnotes for the, the latest in my, my Fiori series that I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing how many things he was already onto that we all think we've discovered. Um, he had already figured out that there was a, a, a copy of Fiore in Paris. Hmm. Um, he hadn't been able to find it, but he knew it should be there. And, you know, um, it took Ken Monsheen to find it in what, 10 years ago, but, but in 1904, he knew about it. And, but what the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, yes, these guys had things that they missed on, and they certainly had the nationalistic politics of the early 20th century kind of blurring things for them. You know, mm -hmm. he loves to talk about how much more developed Morozzo is than the German texts, for example. And therefore, Fiore, although is very flawed, um, at least he prefigures the brilliance of Morozzo as opposed to the crudity of the Germans. So, you know, you get that, you get, you get that, you get that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, uh, but having said that, they, these guys were living in a, in a world where fencing was still being practiced and, and was really still in the very end of its being used for duels and even on a battlefield. Um, and they often are, are quite a lot more accurate about things than we give them credit for in just terms of looking at the characteristics of how these guys think about their fighting. And so I've kind of come to a reconsideration of these late 19th, early 20th century authors. And to that, you know, they're, the thing they all hyperbole aside, um, the thing they're not wrong about is that there is definitely a way that German fencing masters approach their art and talking about their art, whether it's the 15th century, the 17th century, or the 18th century. And the same is true about the Italians. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, learning more about the, the stick and knife traditions that are, are living traditions in, in Italy um, really brought that home because you just see it and you see there's a certain way to move, a certain way to retreat, et cetera. And so, yes, martial artists are pirates. They see something that works and they steal it. But it still gets stolen and imported within the milieu of, of that person. You can't mm -hmm. escape who you are. And, you know, uh, there's, there's an Argentine tango and English tango, and it's, they're both tango, but boy, you can tell which one is developed by Latins and which one was developed by Englishmen. Yeah. And, and that's, that's yeah. really interesting because I think that there's a, almost a language component too. Like if we look culturally at the German culture, which is a high context culture and the Italian culture, which is a low context culture in that, you know, typically the Italians will give you a hundred words for one, one idea where the Germans will give you three. 
right? Right. That's, that's, Three for those, smashed for those, together. <laughs> exactly. For those of you who don't understand what low context and high context cultures are, that's that's kind of a, a brief summary of what that, that means. And yeah, the Germans do smash it into one word and it's like 45 characters long. So, um, <laughs> right. But, but like, but like for, for the fencers on here, right? Zverkow. Okay. So there, there is a, a there's a, a German term. Moncellino has the exact same thing in his sword and buckler like three times. And what does it take for him to describe it? You know, I want you to make a false edge cut that will move along the line of the, the Mandrito Tondo, turning your hand so that, so like he has to literally describe it for you mm -hmm. because it has no name. So yeah. he has to work it all out for you. And the Germans go, gosh, I use this a lot. I'll just call it a, you know, a cross cut or a thwart cut or whatever translation you yeah. want. I think, I think cross, cross cut is coming back as the, uh, I, thank the God. accepted term. Thank, thank, <laughs> thank God. Um, thank God. Um, so, uh, you know. And, yeah, uh, no. And, and with a lot of the Italian texts, I think Dalagoke is, is a great example of this. It's a conversation. You know, you have right. you have a muse that Delagoke uses in Lapido to explain everything, and he writes it out like it's a play, and he's just he's explaining these things to him. Yeah. And then you have this these deep humanists like introductions to everything in Manchilino. Oh right, well, who complains that he can't show you what a great writer he is because he has yeah. to talk about fencing? I mean, he literally complains about it. Yeah. And then you've you've got other people like Pagano who is like, yeah, screw that. I'm going to write a metaphorical make-believe ducal court. <laughs> and the fencing displays are going to be how I teach you about fencing. And then his son is like, oh yeah, hold my beer. I'm going to write a deep <laughs> metaphorical, uh, you know, um, thing filled with literary illusion that is so freaking over the top that I don't know if there's actually a word of fencing advice in there. Um, if there is, <laughs> it'll take someone better than me to, to pull it out. But um, yeah, and, and so it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's a very different, it's a very different way to approach, um, to approach how to talk about a physical discipline in words. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, but see, for me, that's what's part of what's cool. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in doing Nick Euro swordsmanship. I'm, I'm yeah. interested in these traditions as traditions. And, you know, it's, so it's like when people say, oh, well, do you, you know, so you do Italian longsword. No, I do not do Italian longsword. I do Armazari or I do Bolognese fencing, et cetera, which includes the longsword. And that's, and that, that's what you lose if you don't try to do that, you know, so. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great way to, to look at it. I mean, and, you know, I, I guess, again, that kind of brings back that challenge of, of Murazzo, but. I mean, I, I think you laid it out well in terms of how to how to look at this from concentric circles, right? And you know, with other things, if we want to look at single-handed sword, I mean, if you need to figure something out with single-handed sword, now that we have an English translation of the Anonimo, uh, I mean, you can you can find some explanation of what it is that you're trying to figure out, even if it's it's you know batshit crazy, but um, yeah. You, you can get an idea of how this would have been done, right? Where with the two-handed sword, you know, we, we don't necessarily get that with Marazzo, but there are Italian traditions where if you, if you are looking for something that fits the Italian bravado and 
language and style and overall just cultural norms, you have something that can help you to really kind of identify what prompted these actions. Why are we doing these things the way that we're doing them? And I think that's yeah. important. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the thing is we can never know. Right. But, yeah. you know, uh, as you know, and this is a joke, but it's one of those jokes that's true. You know, no one does Morozzo. I mean, the last person to do Morozzo was Mrs. Morozzo, right? And so, but, but I mean, seriously, it's, we say that as a shorthand, but what we do is we do a reconstruction of the school of, mm -hmm. and, and that's okay because, you know, no one did, does Osensei's Aikido. No one does Yip Man's Wing Chun, right? They, um, you know, I'm, I'm friends with a, a, a very well-known um, English uh, Wing Chun guy named uh, Samuel Kwok, who has, has literally spent decades training with all of Yip Man's students, his, his two sons, his other senior students, trying to reconstruct, like, what did this guy teach? And the, the reality of it is, is that, you know, Sam would tell you that all of these guys teach something a little different, emphasize different things. Some teach four forms, some teach three, some don't even teach the forms. And he's tried to put that together and, and synthesize that. But in the end, it's still going to be Samuel Kwok's uh, mm -hmm. Wing Chun. And, and that's okay. You're, you're going to do your version of the Bolognese tradition, and I'm going to do mine. And they should be close enough that we can see the, you know, the family resemblance, right? Yeah. Um, but we just have to accept that, is that um, when we plug in these answers, what we get is what may be correct. And, but we can't know because we can't interview them. So what we have to do is we have to try to figure out, okay, what solutions, what frog DNA right, is most likely to get me a correct answer. And just by definition, you know, you know, good science tells us the further you go from the source to import outside data, the bigger the chance of error. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it, it may come down to you're like, wow, I was watching this Salat demo and I, I had this, this, you know, realization or I was watching a a Chinese sword demo and I had this realization and it, it might be totally legit. And it doesn't mean like you shouldn't be willing to open yourself to that, but you probably shouldn't start there if like Fiori and Vadi could provide an answer. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, it, I think that's interesting too, because like in the KDF system actually highlights this really well. If you look at Ringek, Dobringer, um, you know, you all of them have their own take on this of the Zettel and the poem that they're sort of interpreting. Mm -hmm. And you see stylistic differences between those different authors, just like we see stylistic differences from all the, uh, the, the Bolognese authors, you know, like we're, again, we're, we're kind of looking at a century of time where this was prominent and important. And it was something that, you know, obviously, was popular because we see a lot of text built out on it. I mean, Marazzo, Marazzo was a New York Times bestseller, like platinum, you know, right. like right. if you think about the dispersion of his book, it was everywhere. Yeah. Um, so somebody with some sort of a background must have said, hey, this is actually worth 
looking into and holding on to. I mean, I don't think it was just, you know, Maranzo was, you know, the, the best marketer of the 16th century. Um, he certainly and, wasn't the best writer. So it, exactly, and that's that's I mean, kind of what I'm I mean, getting let, at. So I mean, let, let's let's be honest. <laughs> the guy's actually a terrible writer. Um, yes, you know, I'm a man of few words. As he then goes on for like two pages before he gets around to what the hell he wants to teach you, and, you know. So yeah, it's but but that's the point. So he's yeah. not a good writer. It it is it's relatively confusing. It's not it's not structured in a way that makes a lot of sense. Like let's say Manchiolino's is but it was still incredibly popular. So what can we read into that in terms of just saying, why was this so popular? Because obviously people saw value in it and they, they thought it was actually worth something. It was, it, is it just because of the pictures? Like, is that the only thing that really made it interesting was the woodcuts? Right. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, look, clearly, clearly if we had any doubt, we just saw in the last week that Meyer clearly thought it had value. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's actually where I was hoping we would transition to because yeah. he he was he learned fencing and he knew fencing from a lot of different places. He says that he traveled, you know, just like uh, in in um, three two two seven a. It says that Lichtenauer traveled far and wide to learn the art. You know, Myers says that he traveled to learn the art. Right. And, that and, he and, and Fury says the same thing. Although I, I sometimes wonder. If, you know, this isn't sort of like in Japanese martial arts, these guys going up on a mountaintop and like, you know, achieving, <laughs> achieving enlightenment or the Tengu came and taught them. You know, I yeah. traveled far and wide, which means like I, I went to Luigi's house down the street and I went to, uh, you know, I mean, we, we don't know. But but yeah, but regardless, right, whether Meyer really traveled far and wide or bought a bunch of books, um, right. he clearly was a trained fencer who had impressed enough people in a military society that at the time of his death, he had just, you know, landed a really good gig for himself yep. and was writing for progressively more and more prestigious students. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly, you know, clearly was a, was something of a, a fencing prodigy. I mean, he's only, I forget, I'm not a Meyer specialist, but he's what, like, 30 there about yeah, he when he dies mm-hmm. very young when he dies in 1570 so um and you know he's already created three different treatises um mm-hmm. so you know obviously Morozzo wrote his book before the man was born right. um there's uh and then there's the 15 what 56 and the 1568 so you know, whatever version he saw, it doesn't really matter. Um, it clearly inspired him. And you can see, you can see that in how he decided to reorder kind of the, the pedagogics or the didactics of, of the German tradition. Um, you know, talking about moving from guard to guard, creating these long training sequences that include a withdrawal, which you don't see in the earlier German material. You know, they get, they get you to the half sword and then they take care of business and that's kind of the end of it. Um, and, uh, so, you know, but again, it speaks to the fact that the man's on the other side of the Alps and clearly Morozzo's book showed up. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Well, I mean, we know, we know at least that one of Morozzo's senior students, uh, was a German, uh, Giacomo Crafter. Right. Um, he, 
So I've, I actually found a really good source on the crafter family. Um, and they were merchants that worked for the, the Fugers. Did I say that right? Um, and um, they were um, sort of like their whole business was shipping um, textiles, which <laughs> relates even better to Marazzo, right? Starting a textile mill. Um, yeah across the Alps to, and one of their, one of their cities that they were constantly uh, importing uh, goods from across the Alps was Bologna. Um, and the thing that I find really interesting, like if you look at, at uh, Marazzo's dagger section, um, he says to you, Giacomo Crafter of Augsburg and you, Giovanni Battista del Lete, um, as my dear sons and students, right? So these are obviously senior students. He's calling them his sons, right? So I, sure. I, I, I would assume, and I, I could be wrong, that these are his senior students. These are guys who spent a lot of time with him um, and were with him for a long time, uh, if he considered them sons, because I don't see why he would call them that, if not. Um, so that you will remember me, I'll give you advice on numerous presse with the dagger, so that should circumstance require, you will be equipped with what you need to know to defend yourselves. Thus occasionally di um, dine to review these presse and remember me, Achilles. Um, in the said presse, I will present to you as best suited in my writing, so be attentive in order to commit this to memory, which I will begin with subsequent section, um, you know, Jesus, Mary, Virgin. Um, and so one of the things that I, I think, I can't remember if he says, later on, he says that they had specifically requested these things of him. I'm not sure if I covered that in that first paragraph. But I think that's it's it's pretty fascinating that you get this. But Giacomo Crafter, we already have a well-known German student um, that's obviously very sort of uh, akin to Maranzo, somebody that he would was willing to call his son. Um, and there's a clear, and and maybe it's just the the university relation because the University of Bologna was such a big university that you would have people that would travel, um, and and Marazzo's connection as the the master general of arms in Bologna, um, that you would have these sort of deeper roots that would spread out. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but it's clear that he was teaching a multinational uh, sort of audience here. And that he had a lot of students. So um, I'm not sure if that helps with the dispersion of these ideas, getting out and getting across and, and really kind of building up his popularity or what. But um, it's definitely an interesting footnote. Yeah. And I mean, certainly, you know, we know that we know that Italian fencing masters became increasingly in demand and really, you know, especially in the 17th century, obviously. I mean, Fabris basically is the guy who sticks the stake through the heart of the Lichenauer tradition mm -hmm. in, in its homeland. And, uh, you know, you've got German masters for the next 200 years debating who teaches the true Salvatoran tradition, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm sure that part of that was the, the popularity of the Italian universities. And, um, and, you know, it would be great if we knew exactly what the hell Morozzo's title that he has for himself meant, you know, like, what does that mean? And, and was he also teaching at the university the way Darty was, you know, two generations earlier? Um, and we don't, but whatever the case, I think the two things we have to remember is that people in the late middle ages and Renaissance traveled a hell of a lot more than we give them credit for. 
like maybe not the average turnip farmer sure but people of the of the urban and upper classes certainly did Mm -hmm. um and you know the printed book really did change everything and it is amazing how widespread sometimes these printed books crop up in a world without amazon so you know um and uh and yet they do and so um yeah, I, and, I, and I think the coolest thing about this new Meyer and showing the obvious lifts from Morozzo, um, artistic lifts, is that it just confirms that. And it confirms that here is a, a young guy trained in his own native arts who saw that and went, oh, wow, you know what? I can totally work this into yeah. my own tradition and create something new. I mean, I, I think what's cool is that like you said, all these guys always want to tell you that they traveled widely and they studied, you know, okay, so here is a guy we actually know a lot about, Joachim Meyer, and we can actually see the process. Like we can follow the manuscripts and see how it goes from him kind of cribbing. It'll be interesting when it's translated to see mm-hmm. how much it really feels cribbed, right? Yeah, because this is his this is his earliest, correct? Yeah, yeah. And to by the time you get to 1570, which is his latest, and be like, you know, where it's clearly... Yeah, and now we see his final tradition, yeah. Yeah, and and to fairness, if you look at his, you know, his kind of straight pairing that he uses for the rapier, he's Mm -hmm. almost a little bit ahead at that point, kind of prefiguring what, you know, what rapier fencing 30 years later is going to look like, where it's a focus on an extended guard. So it's, um, it's, it's really fascinating, and it shows us both the popularity of Morozzo, and it also shows us kind of how the sort of the innovators of fencing innovated so yeah, yeah. It, it, so the, one of the other things too that really strikes me and this is something i'm, I'm really curious to, to kind of get a hold of is we see images and ideas so far we don't know the text that accompanies them but we see things that are actually a little bit more show a deeper understanding of some of the, the concepts that we now take for granted, like the Segno, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that he illustrates the Segno shows a deeper understanding than what you get from a surface reading of Morazzo. So my question is, is that, is that something that he's reading into Morazzo, the way that we read it and read it from Morazzo? So essentially he's doing Kima in, in Germany, right. you know, in the 1500s, or is this, it, did he actually have a deeper understanding of how this Northern Italian idea of the Segno really played out? Because if you look at, especially the, the image that I love the most is his image with the, um, the quarter staff and he's got that cross step where he's stepping across and uh, sort of giving that strong overbind. Um, you know, that's something that we've been doing for quite some time. Uh, as we practice around the Segno with our more advanced circular footwork. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, you know, that's, is this, is this Meyer having a deeper understanding or is this just, yeah, what he's reading into it? I don't know. It's, it's really fascinating because it seems like there's a lot of depth there. Yeah. I, you know, and again, here's two Italian guys, you know, Italian martial artists talking about Meyer, right? But what's right. what's cool about his book is that his books is that he is one of the few people to write drills and whatnot in there. Mm-hmm. And so the question is like, where'd they come from? 
you yeah. know, are, are we seeing it? Like you said, are we seeing an insight that he's had and created and we're just, you know, is it, is it a carryover? Um, because for Morozzo, what we have, it's really frustrating is we have a curriculum without the lesson plan, right? Yep. You know, here's the assaulty, but I'm not going to tell you how to teach the assaulty. <laughs> here's the assaulty. They're clearly meant to be done not only as a solo form, but as partnered sequences. But I only tell you the partner's role when it's something he absolutely must do. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and it's hard and, it, and it's very hard. Um, but, uh, I don't know, for me, that's kind of half the fun is the detective work. Um, even if, even if sometimes I will confess and I was just, um, we just got done going through his polearm material, mm -hmm. you know, which is far more straightforward than a lot of his, his swordsmanship. Um, it's, it's like, as he gets to the later parts of the book, he got a little bit more succinct as a writer or something, <laughs> you know, um, but, yeah. uh, but, but even then you're like, so really you have a name for every single freaking guard. And then here you come up with the guard and the other guard. So, yeah. oh, and by the way, this one is, is Porta de Ferro and Largo. And, you know, it, it's like, it's just, um, yeah. you know, uh, or, you know, but then he gets to the, the lance and, you know, because it's so long, it's such a long weapon. He's like, you know, I want you to run, to take three or four running steps out to your side while um you know while twisting your hands it's like you want me to what to what <laughs> and it's like where where is he where is he come back this is a partner drill where is the bad guy yeah and, uh uh you know so so sometimes it's not that much fun actually sometimes a little more specificity would have been would have been awesome so yeah for sure yeah and we see i don't know i mean we we see other concepts i mean you could you could argue that manchilino more or less describes what meyer illustrates in the meyer square i don't want to get too deep into just like his meyer bolognese but you yeah. know he says if you want to strike your opponent in his upper body you should begin your action below similarly if you want to strike him below you should begin your operations above this is because as one defends the parts being attacked he necessarily creates openings elsewhere and that I mean, that's and maybe it's a stretch, but if you were to actually illustrate that and in, in some sort of a, a drilling action, you would create Meyer Square. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. So. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm excited to see if Meyer, with his knowledge of fencing, whether it's Bolognese or not just the fact that we know that he was a skilled fencer. I'm excited to see him explain the Segno with his understanding of fencing in a way that may be deeper than what we see from some of the other authors um, and see if there's something there that we can take out of it to help us understand Bolognese. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. I, I know there was this big description of, does this mean Myers Bolognese? And, and that, you know, everyone wanted this simple yes, no answer. And, and the answer is no, yeah. Myers Meyer. Yeah, exactly. And he was, yeah. you know, he was an innovator who clearly was taking lessons from other arts and marrying it to his own. But you know what? I guarantee you, he knew a lot more and grew up around a lot more people who knew what happened in real sword fights than we do. Yeah, for sure. And so um, that makes him really useful to us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the first place I should jump. 
and of course, for something like the longsword, where he is clearly the most carefully trying to work within tr the tradition because it's the the ancient and honorable weapon of the German race, blah, 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 blah. You know, as all these guys say, it probably doesn't mean that that's my first source to understand Morozzo, but he does give us a living mind inside of tactics and innovations and how someone else was reading and understanding Morozzo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think so. one of the things that I, I, to sort of expound upon this further, especially with the Segno, the best explanation of the Segno and how to use the Segno is probably at least for an English translation. I'll clarify that is Dochiellini. Um, unfortunately, we don't have an English translation of Altoni, but I would. I'm patiently awaiting, and I've tried myself a few times. Yeah, good, um, good, good luck. It's hard. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's a hard. It test. is. I've, I've, yeah. Trying to make sense of some of it is is pretty wild, especially because my Italian is awful. But. Um, Either way, uh, with the Segno in particular, you know, Marazzo just says teach your students to step around the Segno, right? He doesn't really tell us how to use it tactically. Um, Dociolina kind of gives us an explanation of how to use it tactically. Palladini gives us a really good explanation, but he does it in a paragraph, right? It's yeah. not it's not enough to really kind of flush that out. And I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping that Meyer even as an outsider who's looking at the Bolognese system, probably, like you said, from having the text is going to give us a better explanation of how to do that. And, you know, one of the things that I've actually been talking about a lot with KDF practitioners is, you know, talking about concentric circles. I know you said sometimes it's better not to look forward, but with KDF, their best explanation may be looking forward sometimes versus... Mm -hmm you know, staying right. within the Lichtenauer right. tradition, they can't really look back unless they're going to look at I-33, which I could argue <laughs> after after watching Rob's class on um, on first and second intentions, his provocations, his Bolognese class, yeah. which is an amazing lecture, by the way. Uh, if anybody, okay. everybody should go check that out on your on your YouTube um, channel for the Chicago Swordplay Guild because it was an amazing lecture. Um, but that's, that lecture actually in my mind, helped me connect I-33 to Lichtenauer in a way where I was talking to Ben Strictly and I was like, hey, and he was like, actually, <laughs> and uh, we, we got into a pretty awesome discussion about um, sort of tying those two things together. But what I was getting at is um, with, with the Segno in particular, there is, um, so Meyer, the fact that he has the Segno, the approach to measure could be argued as the zoofection, right? And that mm -hmm. brings you to the edge of measure, which would be the outside concentric circle of the segno. Mm -hmm. The second space, the space the in between to the next circle would be the Krieg. And then that center circle would obviously um, sort of represent, you know, as what um, I believe Palladini calls the Mazura di Freire. Um, it would be the, you know, sort of the the area where you start going into presse and, and sort of wrestling at sort. So is there a connection there where Meyer was like, hey, this is what I've already been learning. This is measure, tempo, the things that we use in the Italian language that a lot of times KDF people are like, that doesn't exist in Lichtenauer, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. Is Meyer looking at these things and saying, hey, these are the things that I understand and these are really important concepts in the Italian fencing. And now I'm pulling it into this to better explain to Germans what 
you know, isn't you necessarily know, there in Lichtenauer. You know, God, God, I would hope because um, if there's anything that this, if there's anything that this community needs to understand is that it really is all Aristotle. And yes. A lot, a lot of digital ink could really end if people would quit trying to make for Indus and knock into anything other than just simple Aristotelian explanations of yes. exactly what it sounds like. There's the before and the after and the, and the between or during. And that's all that, you know, temple, tempo and mesotempo is. Um, but, you know, it's, um, I, I, again, these are educated people relative to their world. And, you know, if we quit trying to force them to conform to our world, um, we'll understand them on their own terms and we'll go down a lot more blind alleys. You know, um, I told you I started with silver and like I, I have a rule that I will, I absolutely will not participate in any discussion ever again that addresses George Silver because <laughs> the, the poor man, the poor man could not have written a simpler text and the amount of, of just, the, the amount of ink spilled um, when, I, I can't tell you how many times, like I've provided entire bibliographies of like, Silver is quoting Aristotle through Occam, who was an Englishman, who was the definitive source on Aristotle of the late middle ages, taught at every university in Europe, you know, wrote at the court of the Holy Roman Emperor at the time Lichnauer was writing, like, there's no debate what the intellectual framework is, mm -hmm. but, but, but who the hell wants to read a book on Aristotle? So, right. you know, um, but at a certain point, like if you, if, if you really want to get in there, you either need to understand these people and the world they grew up in because they're educated and mm -hmm. understand how the quadrivium and the trivium work, or um, you can make some shit up <laughs> and, you know. Well, yeah. And so I think that this is what's interesting when, and this is, I think, what a lot of people will dance around. And then, you know, you're talking about sort of like a pan-European system of fighting. Like when people make the argument for a pan-European system of fighting, there a lot of times they'll point out similarities between different systems. And they're like, well, why are these things all so similar? And the similarity between the only thing that is pan-unifying that I think exists in, in European martial arts outside of... Uh, sort of, um, you know, I, I guess maybe uh, divorcing it from cultural differences um, and how they play into the development of sword fighting is the fact that everybody's relying on Aristotle, right? Like, right. I, I don't understand how, like, I mean, if you want to understand European sword fighting, I mean, really, if, if from a fundamental standpoint, from a, a metaphysical standpoint, you could point all of your students to Aristotle and you could say, start here and go into whatever system you want. Right, right. It's not some weird thing that Vigiani happened to quote at length because yeah. he was trying to be an innovator. I mean, the whole point of Vigiani is he's not trying to be an innovator. He's arguing that fencing masters needlessly obscure a universal truth. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's true. Yeah. And it, it's, it's almost like he's saying, why are we putting so many curtains around this one simple thing, which is Aristotle's physics? Let me explain it to you. And then let me put window drapings on it again later on. But 
you know. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he's uh, he basically is a 16th century example of Bezencor, who, you know, wrote his book as a bunch of guys sitting around a hunting lodge and this nobleman is uh, sentiments of the sword is talking about, oh, well, you know, I, I, I've been training with my fencing master for years. And he's like, well, then you're getting screwed. But fencing's really simple. And in three <laughs> nights, I could teach you to fence. And every every day is a, a new lesson. I mean, Vigiani is the same, is the same sort of little heretic, right? Which is that mm-hmm. the it's actually very simple. Um, and it I, but I think the fact that you know he wrote that in 1590, Bezencourt wrote in I think the 1890s, 1870s, something like that. Um, maybe, maybe a little earlier. Anyway, 19th century. And and here we are going through this again now. This shows us something about people is that we we love to make things harder than they need to be. Yeah, for sure. And and in the end, it's a monkey trying to stick a pointy stick into another person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it is. So yeah. yeah. Well, I know that we're getting a little bit long on time. So yeah, thing that I like to um, sort of conclude with is the question: What is something that you think we as a community can do to better improve? Uh, and reflecting the sources on our fencing? Well, I, I think it's, um, for me, it, it's twofold. I mean, you talked about, you talked about footwork and, and said some nice things about our footwork. And I, I really think the first thing from a mechanical point of view is that we really need to spend time understanding that there is a, a body aesthetic to every martial art. Um, if, if your goal is a traditional martial art and not you know just MMA with swords, then you owe it to yourself to figure out how they moved and why. And that doesn't mean you have to become, you know, a, a, a reenactor per se, but it, it does mean you need to, to, to spend some time looking at the culture that produced these things, whether it's the artwork, the, you know, the low stances you see in, for example, in a mire or the very erect body carriage uh, that aristocratic body carriage of an Italian. You need to know if you're doing Bolognese fencing, what sprezzatura means. You know, if it doesn't look like your like your movements are effortless, right? And actually, sprezzatura really means disdain to make something seem so simple that it seems you know nonchalant, right? Um, if you can't do that, then if it looks really aggressive and and, and intense, you're not doing what they did. And I think that the more you try to get to that, you start to realize that it's not just an affectation. It's because they're also teaching you to be relaxed. And by being relaxed, you can be responsive in a way you can't when you're tense. And so I I think trying to learn how to move the way they did, trying to understand how, you know, a light shoe, uh, you know, a, a fitted doublet, which forces your body into a certain type of carriage, et cetera, how that affects the, the human machine actually does help inform the martial art. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's the tactical or the technical thing I think we need to do. Um, I think that the tactical thing that we can do as a community is, you know, is to understand that um, tournaments and, uh, you know, fencing get togethers, et cetera, are all important. And it's why we enjoy doing this as modern people. Um, but they only reflect a reality of, of what modern people and their contemporary athleticism can do on a given day. They don't reflect the martial art. And to try to understand the martial art, you've gotta be willing to get past, it seems to work when we spar. 
because unfortunately you and I might spend a, a long weekend working something out and be absolutely convinced, um, but it still may not fit what Morozzo said. And the problem is we don't have a Morozzo or a Sebastiano or anybody else to test it against. We only have each other. So the fact that it worked on us doesn't mean anything. And that doesn't mean you have to constantly reinvent the wheel, hmm. but it does mean you have to make sure your wheel looks like a 16th century wheel and not a 21st century wheel. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, actually, um, because that in some ways defies a little bit of, I think, uh, the sort of common consensus. So, but I, I, I definitely understand you in that. And I, I want you to expand upon that a little bit further because sure. I know that a lot of people and myself included, you know, the, the way that I was taught was the framework to really kind of develop your interpretation, use, um, you know, various mm -hmm. really kind of following like the Jake Norwood method. The, of triangulation um, and kind of using tournaments to validate against a sort of an uncooperative sure. opponent. So I, I did a whole series of lectures on training on our, our sword play online. And I think they're all available now so people can see them. And so one of the things I said is, um, again, people have this idea that CSG is anti-tournament. We, we host a tournament here. We, we host it every January, obviously last year, this last year we didn't. Um, you know, we held, the, as far as I know, the first HEMA one at the very first WMAW in 1989. Mm -hmm. um, I have students who travel to tournaments. I myself competed in, in three different things and, and have a whole bunch of, you know, various medals and trophies I gained over the years. Um, tournaments, in my opinion, the one thing they absolutely don't do is tell you a single thing about your martial arts interpretations. Like, mm -hmm. they are the absolute worst embodiment of that. They test your athleticism, they mm -hmm. test your psychological preparedness, mm -hmm. and they test your willingness to test yourself against someone who doesn't necessarily care if they hurt you in order to win a cheap plastic medal. But that's literally what you're fighting for are cheap plastic medals, and maybe some tournaments have a sword or something. And, and bigger the prize, the more people are willing to F each other up. Sure. Um, but here's where I'm going with this. Um, and the more and Jake and I used to go back and forth on this all the time. The tournament we run, our, our rules fit on one piece of paper, right, in terms of the scoring. The long point model with all the judging, et cetera, um, is something that I gave up on a long time ago because it's completely subjective and you can't actually make people fight cleanly. Mm -hmm. um, and real fights, if you look at real combat, it's not clean and it's not pretty. So, um, so consequently, consequently, before anyone listening to this gets the wrong <laughs> point out of this, I'm not saying tournaments are bad and don't do them. Actually, quite the opposite. I think people do should do them. They should compete um, because if you only fence people in your own school or your own way or when it's just a friendly sparring match, um, you tell yourself a different lie. Tournaments test your ability to perform under psychological pressure. Mm -hmm. They do not test your technological or your, your technical historicity or cleanliness. Um, if they did, Olympic fencing would be the ultimate expression of epi fencing, mm -hmm. but it looks nothing like epi fencing, a, a traditional classical epi fencing because the rules and the equipment of the art have allowed it not to, if that mm -hmm. makes sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, having said that, I got news for you. An Olympic level fencer is in many ways uh, a far more dangerous athlete than anybody in HEMA. They're a fucking Olympian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it, 
Right. A, a, a world kendo champion is not doing kenjutsu, but in terms of their speed, their ability to fire under pressure, their ability to perceive an opening and take it, their control of measure, um, they far and exceed 99.9% of us. So, uh, okay. So, so the athleticism of it is important. Um, the, the psychological challenge is important, but here's the problem. Case in point, if it's a judged system, everyone sooner or later learns to play to the judge. Mm -hmm. And by what I mean is techniques that judges don't see well, anyone who's smart cuts them out of their, cuts them out of their repertoire. The judge can't see it. So why would you do it? Um, there's a whole host of German techniques. When was the last time you saw someone effectively press the hands in a tournament? Well, <laughs> well right. I mean, you've, you've met Ben Strickling, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you know who he is. So yeah. he's, he's the head of our, our yeah. school. And right. Uh, right. as a matter of fact, when, when we have, uh, when we host our tournament, which is a continuous fighting rule set, um, we, a, 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 a press to the hands is worth just as much as a hit to the head. And so it's, it's an, it's encouraged for people right. to do those techniques. Right. But and so you have to tailor your rules to go for that sort of a, a technique. It, it, it's not something that you're just going to. Exactly. And, and a continuous fighting system sometimes helps with that also because it allows certain things to happen. Right. But everything yeah. that my point is that every choice we make to create a rule is going to encourage certain things and not others. Like uh, we designed yeah, our sure. rules, we designed our rule set to just punish the living hell out of doubles. Mm -hmm. So you know it, it's it's real simple. You do x number of you do x number of passes. If you if you win, you get a point. If you don't get hit, you get another point. If there's a double, both people lose a point. And those mm -hmm. point totals is what like dictates that. you're moving on, right? And mm -hmm. so sometimes people end up walking out of the fight going, I, I, I don't get it. I have a negative score. Like I, I'm now worse in terms of advancing than I was yeah. before I fought. Well, right, you did everything wrong. So, so those things are good and they, they test a certain amount of things, but they don't necessarily test, they don't necessarily test your knowledge of the art as a whole because all things are true. I'm 50, right? Yeah. I have, I probably have a higher technical knowledge than a number of my students. If it's a long, you know, if it's a long round robin tournament day, mm -hmm. I'm going to gasp before them because I'm older. I'm 20 years older and that, yeah. that matters. Um, yeah. You know, I have nerve damage in one arm and I have a bad back. That makes me a little bit slower. Someone who's a really good athlete who is half as well trained may be able to push through that. Those things are also relevant, but they aren't necessarily relevant for understanding how a martial art works. Um, mm -hmm. And I had a student who I could never explain this to. He was six foot eight with really long <laughs> arms. So his solution was, you know, to basically snipe the top of people's scalps. And, <laughs> and so, well, why doesn't this just, why isn't this just all you need to do? Yeah. And so he had a, he had to learn what a stop thrust into the throat when someone really doesn't care how hard they hit you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, feel, but so, so tournaments test a lot of things. They don't necessarily test your technical expertise they do test your ability to pull whatever your core is out of on pressure there's a great article on the uh, international yeah. armazari society page that christian cameron wrote called the metaphysics of armazari and he makes the point of you know um 
to become an Olympic fencer, you need essentially three techniques you can do at an Olympic level, mm-hmm. three techniques you can do at a sub-Olympic level, mm-hmm. and then a host of everything else you can pull out when someone has managed to beat all of that. And it's, it's a great explanation of the mindset of how to develop technique for competition. Um, and that's important. Uh, but that's a little bit different than saying, I'm trying to master Bolognese swordsmanship. Right, right. If Interestingly enough, though, well, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, Lavino gives almost exact advice, right? Like he basically what he says is that if you're fighting somebody that you've never fought before um, and you don't know how they fight or what their skill level is that you should use constraining type actions and beats on their sword. Right. And he says, you should never use falsata against somebody who you don't understand. And, right. and you should use these beats and constraining actions until you have a good read on what their skill level is. So then you can start using falsata. Right. Right. So he almost has this hierarchy of how to approach a fight that he's never been engaged in. Um, and I, I, I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, you know, in some way, my biggest frustration with tournaments is that most people just have absolutely no concept of measure. I've made it my, my mission to teach HEMA measure, um, or at least the, an, an understanding of measure. And that's why I'm excited about Yokum. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and you're spot because... on they just close in and it's just like, <laughs> right. Oh no, you're, like you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. And you know, it's the, the, the generic stereotypical HEMA fight is, is two guys here. They do a little hop uh-huh. and then they go like this. Yep. And you see a lot of Javericals back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until yep. somebody raises a flag. Yep. And yeah, I mean, they might as well be boxing with swords and, yeah. uh, and right. then they get mad. They get mad when people snipe their hands from that range. And it always cracks me up because I'm like, look, if you didn't walk in the measure and just stop, they right. probably wouldn't have sniped your hands. But the problem is, and this goes back to a conversation that we had um, before getting on the podcast where we were talking about gloves and people learning to protect their hands. Right. If you don't want your hands to get hit, don't don't walk into measure and stop and just expect that you're not going to get hit in the hands because if if somebody knows what they're doing you're giving them a perfect target at wide measure that they can just pop you in the hands and protect themselves without getting hit right right and by the way that's really good fencing because if i freaking disable your hand the fight is over you're done so like yeah so don't get mad at them for doing the smart thing yeah and no it's absolutely true um and and measure is measure is uh, a crucial thing. I, I guess the other big thing too that we could really afford to do better is second intention fighting. Um, mm. You know, is that everyone? So many people think that the key to get into a fight is throw your hardest, strongest blow as you rush in, and then that gets you in, and you can do a thing. Yeah. Um, and that's really simplistic. Uh, you know, it's like why did they develop all these feints and complex actions, et cetera? Mm. Um, you know, fence with all your strength doesn't mean be a moron. Um, right. <laughs> so, right. And uh, so, you know, you put that with lack of measure and, um, and you take all the fencing out of your fencing. So, and, and uh, just the last part on tournaments, part of the reason is the one thing we can't really s- simulate with tournament. And, you know, you've fought in a number of them now. 
early on when I first used to do this, I used to get sick to my stomach the day of a tournament. I'd be nervous. You don't want to suck in front of your friends. But after you've done it for a while, you really realize that like, it's just another thing. And really, unless you're, unless you're going into like the last tier of the thing, the yeah. vast majority of people, it, it has, no one even knows you're fighting. It, it really doesn't, you know, maybe, maybe your wife cares if she's there, yeah. If, yeah. you know? So, um, <laughs> right. So, so, but the problem is the thing we can't simulate is that in a real sword fight, you're going to be maimed or die. So the last thing you want to do is leap in and glue yourself to that person. Yep. And of course, the more we put more and more gear on, the less and less you're afraid of it. So back to what we said very early on in the podcast, there's this challenge, or maybe it's before the podcast, there's this challenge that um, I need the gear so that we can compete between schools where we have different ideas of what's a good hit. But if I put too much gear, then we also fight differently. And so we're constantly trying to figure out how to make this feel real and i think i guess what i'm getting at is what we as a community need to understand is that none of these things the forms the cutting practice the tournament the friendly sparring none of it is real to do this art you have to do all of it so if you do it just to compete in the tournament then you are just doing a sport if you are doing all of these things to try to get to a higher truth then you have to understand that they're all legs on a table and I, and no, no one is necessarily more important than the other. And I, that's, I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think I've seen a really interesting evolution of walking, seeing an, an older generation of people. Um, I'm not saying <laughs> not to say that you're old, but um, oh, that's okay. I'm, I'm feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen an older generation of fighters walk away from tournaments and really start to focus in on on that sort of higher level study and really trying to understand things from different concepts. You know, like I mean, Jake Norwood just a couple weeks ago was out in the woods with Michael Chittister and you know, like trying to right. figure out what it was like to be a lance. Right, right. St- stuff, stuff. You know, that years ago. Uh, it, stuff years ago that Jake, that, that, you know, actually not Jake, that's the funny thing, but years ago that a number of people from that generation, which is really the generation after mine, uh, used to roll their eyes at me over. Um, yeah. Right. And, but it's, it's the, the idea of, of trying to achieve that deeper understanding versus mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it's, it's almost a level. It's, it's like a maturity is what right. it is. It's, it's understanding that there's, there's more to, to what we're looking at than something like, you know, like you said, yeah. just fighting for and, class. Stuff like yeah. That. And, and it's a process and it's a process, you know, um, young people want, want to compete and I think they should, and I think it's good. Um, yeah. And then at some point you also realize that, you know, like any sport um, that favors certain things and there's diminishing returns on it, unless your purpose is the sport just for the sport. And, and honestly, that isn't wrong either as long as you just understand that if, if that makes sense you know if the person's thing is look i do i do modern longsword and that's what i do and i do modern competition longsword and i could give two shits about all this other historical stuff i don't have a problem with that i just want you to be honest about it and then that's cool but we don't do the same thing yeah yeah, yeah. no i i think you're exactly right and uh yeah I, that's kind of that's what I've seen a lot, uh, you know, 
there's some people who've especially I've seen lately talk about uh, sort of and I don't want to how do I phrase this? They've talked about creating their like own systems and things like that and really trying to like develop something outside of historical martial arts um, or even like achieving a certain level of understanding in, in historical martial arts where you could start to sort of formulate an idea of your own way of fighting. And I, when, when people say stuff like that, I almost think to myself, well, that's not that's not Western martial arts. It's not HEMA. That's not really what we're we're really kind of getting at here. Like, I mean, if you're doing something and you're trying to, I mean, I guess in some way, you know, they're like, well, why would I look at the 400 plays in the Anonymo when I could just say, hey, this works for me, so this is what I'm going to do. Sure, but but what that that's not HEMA. That's mess. Modern European sword sport. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and, and and I think and, that's and, kind of what I'm getting at because we it, it may work for you in the context of competition, right? But you don't know if that would work for you in the context of a real sword fight. No, and you but, never will. Exactly, unless you're crazy. Right, and in, in which case you still it still means nothing because it means you will have gone in a sword fight with someone else who knows nothing about sword fighting. Right. Sure. So, yes. or, or Absolutely. you murdered somebody in, in which case we got a whole different issue, but yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, so it's right. It, it's, it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because in the end, all of this is being done for your own personal edification, but it is different and you need, yeah. and people need to just accept that. Yeah. That's a great point. All right, Greg, all right. Um, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I still have a million things to, to ask you and to talk about. So <laughs> I think I maybe, uh, maybe I can get you on again sometime, but I, I'm, uh, I'm sure you could get me to do that. <laughs> I, I like, I like to pontificate so you can get me to do that. And you know, yeah, and I don't, like everyone else, I've been locked in my house for a year or so. Any, <laughs> any excuse to talk to other people. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was great having you on. Um, thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. My pleasure. All right, bye. Take care. And that concludes another episode of L'Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. Thanks again to Greg for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us. That was a wonderful episode. I learned so much from him. Um, you know, I, I can't say enough about his kindness and his wisdom. I'm definitely grateful that he came on to the podcast. Uh, next week's episode is going to be a new segment. I know it's been a long time between episodes and... Uh, You'll have to forgive me for that, but uh, next week's episode is going to be a new segment called uh, Drinks and Darty, where I'm going to sit down and have a drink with Stephen Freitas, and we're going to talk about the Bolognese system in a much more informal setting. So stay tuned for that, and stay saucy, my friends. <laughs>